Well, this morning we are continuing our series in the book of Esther. And before we start, let's pray. Father, we, we submit ourselves this morning to the authority of your word. Lord, we, we just don't listen to a lesson. We are desirous, we are interested in hearing the voice of God. Lord, we ask that you would speak, speak authoritatively, speak powerfully, speak truthfully, which we know you do to us, that we might know you more, that we might be drawn closer to you, that we might be transformed by you. Lord, speak through your word this morning, and we would ask that you would glorify your name, that you would exalt yourself through the preaching of your word, through the listening to the preaching of your word, and through the application of this truth to our lives. Oh, Lord, come Holy Spirit and dwell among us this morning as your word is spoken. In Christ's name, amen. All right, well, in chapter 6 of Esther, last week we learned a very important moment in the entire book of Esther. Chapter 6, verse 1. This is, this is the hinge of the book. This is where all of the entire book of Esther, this, particularly this chapter, rests on because there is a dramatic change because of verse 1 in chapter 6. And it simply says this, On that night, the king could not sleep. Last week, we saw how this ordinary, unremarkable human experience of not being able to sleep was a work of God's hidden providence to turn around a very dire situation. Haman, the second in command of King Ahasuerus, his kingdom is a man who craves honor. He, he craves recognition. And in the capital city of Susa, where this is all taking place, this, this city, there is uh, one man who refuses to, to honor Haman as he desires. That man is Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman as Haman walks by. And it enrages Haman. And he comes to hate Mordecai. And so in his rage, Haman, Haman comes to the king he deceives the king in, in telling the king, listen, there's this certain group of people and they don't follow your laws. And so, and so what we need to do is, for your sake, we need to get rid of these people. We need to annihilate them. We need to destroy them. We need to annihilate them. We need to kill them. That is what, what Haman writes in this edict that he wants the king to sign. And so the king does sign it and, and Haman, Haman is overjoyed. He has permission to exterminate the people of God, the Jews of Persia. Now this Jewish population in Persia, Persia it is massive. It, it goes, it takes place from, from the Persian empire goes from Ethiopia to India. It is 127 provinces. It is the largest kingdom of the world and there's Jews everywhere and Haman wants to annihilate them all. 
And after another encounter with Haman, Haman has been invited. Esther knows about this. Esther has been told that that the Jews are to be exterminated. She's Jewish. And her cousin Mordecai comes and appeals to her, go to the king. And so Esther goes to the king, but she doesn't say anything at first. She just asks the king, will you host, will you allow me to host a banquet for you, a feast for just you and just Haman? And so Haman comes and they celebrate the feast. And the king says to, to Esther, okay, what is it? What is your request? Whatever it is you request, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And Esther's request is this at the first banquet. I want another banquet. <laughs> I want you to come back with Haman for another banquet. So the king, he, 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 he says, yes, I'm happy to come back. And so the, the, the first feast is over. Haman's going home. And there's Mordecai at the king's gate again. And what does Mordecai do? He does not bow down. And this enrages the, the, the Haman even more. And Haman goes home and he just, he cries on his wife's shoulder. I've had a great day. I'm inviting all of my, my friends and, and I'm inviting my, my sons to celebrate what a special person that I am. And, and yet this is all ruined because because Mordecai won't bow down to me. And so his wife comes up with, with great comfort and a great idea. Oh, I'll tell you what. Build what is called a gallows here, but it literally, in Persia, it was a stake to impale Mordecai on. And so build this stake 75 feet high. Ridiculously high. Higher than any stake ever, and, and impale Mordecai on it. And, and build it, build it in your own backyard. So you can see Mordecai anytime you want. And that's what he does. And so Mordecai does not, is not aware of this. And Haman has to get the king's permission to kill Mordecai. He had gotten the king's permission to kill all the Jews, but he had to wait a year. And he wants to get rid of he wants to get rid of Mordecai right now. And so, as we saw in chapter 6, Haman gets up early the next morning. If not in the middle of the night, he goes to the king's palace. And the king ends up, uh, the king says, I couldn't sleep. I'm reading this book of memorable deeds. And I come across a man who the king wants to delight in. What should this king do for the man he delights in? And Haman thinks, oh, it's me. He wants to delight in me. And so he gives this, this just ridiculous, oh, do this for him, you know, dress him in the king's robes, put him on the king's horse, lead him through the city and have the, have the, the person, the noble, have, have one of your best nobles leading the horse, declaring, this is the man whom the king delights in and honor him that way. And so the king says, that's great. I want you to do that for Mordecai who saved my life five years ago, and I never rewarded him. And so Haman has to do this. And as we saw in chapter 6, at the end of chapter 6, Haman goes home, and again he, he just complains to his wife about what kind of day he had, and his wife just looks at him and says, you're, you're fighting against the Jews and there's some awareness, even though God is never mentioned throughout the entire book of Esther, not once, there's some awareness because Zeresh, Haman's wife, looks at him and just simply says, you're done. <laughs> you're over. Game, game over. 
up to this point, it has been an interesting string of events for Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people. They've been, and they're, they're still headed, even with all of this, they're still headed for certain death at the hands of Haman. But as we've seen again and again in the book of Esther, God's divine providence changes everything simply because the king cannot sleep. He cannot sleep. And as we saw last week, this, there's a word that describes this, and that word is peripety. Peripety, P-R-I-P-E-T-Y, peripety. And it simply means a sudden turn of events that reverses the expected or intended outcome. Haman has this intended outcome for Mordecai and the Jewish people. That is destruction. Peripety. Peripety, a sudden turn of events. The king cannot sleep. And Haman is the recipient of peripety, things, this sudden turn of events. Now, if you're, if you're, if you've ever been a kid, anybody here ever been a kid? If you've ever been a kid, you've watched cartoons on Saturday mornings. What's one of the most famous cartoons ever? Beep, beep. Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote. Throughout the series, you see that the roadrunner never gets caught. Every trap that is set for the roadrunner with Acme products ends up blowing up Wiley Coyote. He just keeps coming back for more and more and more. Haman is Wiley Coyote. He's after he is after the roadrunner. He's after Mordecai and after the Jews. And this has been, this has been this day, this day where he's had to lead the king's horse through the city with Mordecai on it. This day where he's had to declare that Mordecai is the man the king delights in. This day, this horrific day finally comes to an end. It finally is over. And as that comes to an end, his wife is telling him, yes, you're going to fall before the Jews. And then in verse 14 of chapter 6, this is, this is what the author writes. While they were yet talking with him, so his wife and his family talking with Haman, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So all this is going on, and now the second feast has come. And that is the story that we're reading. Look at chapter 7, and let's read through chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. This has literally been the worst day of Haman's life. He, is, he started out joyfully expecting Mordecai's demise. He ends up being humiliated as he's required by the king to publicly honor Mordecai. But then the king's servants hurriedly come and bring Haman back to the palace for the, for the second banquet that Esther has prepared. And, and Haman's got to be thinking, at least this day isn't a total loss. I'm, I'm still special enough to be the only one invited to a banquet with the king and queen. 
And now the wine has been flowing and the banquet is drawing to a close. Um, most likely, I would suspect Haman and, and, and particularly King Ahasuerus, who loves wine, um, are, are relaxed and happy. And, he's, and so Haman's thinking, okay, the state didn't start out well, but it, it's getting much better. Mordecai and the Jews are still under a death sentence, and I'm still second in command, and I still have great favor with the king and queen, and all is well. But he's not aware of the stinging and life-changing reversal that is about to take place. Now, in 7-2, you know, in, in the first feast, the king is, is Esther, what is it you want? You, you hold this feast. What's, what's your request? And Esther just puts him off. And so the king's, the king's curiosity is heightened. It's, it's, it's growing. So it says on the second day in verse 2, on the second day as they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And, and what is your request? Even up to half my kingdom. Even up to half my kingdom. And so in light, in light of what she's about to share, now she's got to do it carefully. Because she wants to remain in the king's good graces. And so she responds in verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king. And so she's, she's honoring the king because what she's about to ask is significant, serious, life-changing. This, this is a serious risk-reward moment for her because when she does share, he is Stunned as she asks for her life and the life of the Jewish people. Now, he does not know yet that it's the Jewish people. As you look back in, in chapter 3, uh, Haman doesn't tell the king it's the Jewish people. He just says, it's a certain people that don't follow your laws that we need to get rid of. And it's here Somewhere along in this process here, the king learns that it is the Jewish people that are to be destroyed and that Esther is one of them. So what she shares is stunning. But she has, oh, she has, Esther has wisely and cunningly cornered the king because he has three times offered her whatever she wants, even up to half his kingdom. I mean, he really can't say no at this point. What, and what she wants is to live. What she wants is to remain alive. If I have found favor, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. And then she goes on in verse 4, For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Oh, where have we heard those words before? Those were the written words in the edict that Haman presented to the king. Oh, king, there are, there's this certain people that we need to get rid of. We need to destroy them. We need to annihilate them. We need to kill them. So she quotes this edict exactly as it was worded to the king. And she, 
She's saying, me, it's me, your, your majesty, your queen is facing death, a death sentence. If, if we had been sold as slaves, she goes on to say, for, for verse 4, if we had been sold, I and my people, as slaves to be destroyed, to be killed, to be not, if we had been merely sold as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. In other words, look, my, our people have been in slavery for, for centuries. I, I, I'm here as a slave. I was taken from my home. I was put into the king's harem. And, and that's okay. I wouldn't bother you with that. that that's, that's our lives. But this is more than slavery. We are, we are to be Decimated. We are to be destroyed. We are to be annihilated, exterminated from the face of the earth. And and look, the, the money, the money that the the that was promised to you. See, remember, Haman told the king, if you let me destroy these people, I will pay you ten thousand talents. That that's like two-thirds of the year income for the kingdom. And, and Esther says, listen, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. In other words, listen, the, the money, the money that, that you would lose by having the entire Jewish population killed is much greater because these people won't pay taxes anymore. These people won't be here to serve your kingdom anymore. And this is, this is the great loss. This, and this is a life and death moment for Esther and the, and the Jewish people. She is not only pleading for her life, she's pleading for the life of her people. But here's what she's doing. She's identifying with the Jewish people in front of the king who was not aware she was not Persian and who's now finding out she is Jewish identifying as a Jew puts her life immediately in danger. And, and standing right there listening to all of this is Haman. He's, he's taking all this in. And, and he's aware. He's the one who wants to put them all to death. And so she goes on. She says, I, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. And then King Ahasuerus, verse 5, says to Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? It's like rapid fire. Who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? I love it. There, there, there is this. I guarantee you, there was a tension-filled pause at this moment as Esther looks at the king and he's, he's enraged and then she goes him him she goes a foe and an enemy this wicked Haman this wicked Haman After the day he has already had with Mordecai, can it get any worse? Oh, yes, it can. As Esther points at him and rightly says, this is who it is, here's Haman's response. 
Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Oh, understandably so. And what is the king's response? Well, it's, it's anger. And the king, verse 7, arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. He knew the outcome. The, the king leaves the room. Now, what the author does not tell us is, first of all, why is King Ahasuerus angry? What exactly is he angry about? Is he angry that, that Esther has lied to him and not revealed that she is Jewish? Is, is that why he's angry? Is he angry that Haman deceived him about the edict and the, the Jewish people? Is he angry that, that, that Haman was really putting him on about the 10,000 talents he was going to pay? Is he angry that Haman wants to kill his wife? Is he angry that Haman wants to kill Mordecai, the man who saved his life? The author never tells us. All he tells us is, is that he's angry. Is he angry that he realizes he has to grant the queen's request, which means reversing the edict which in Persia, a law made by the Pers Persians and Medes was not revocable. It was irrevocable. And so the king is in this dilemma. What do I do? How do I get out of this? Because if I, if I reverse it, if I give Esther what she wants, I'll look like a fool. And if I don't, I'll kill the queen and I'll look like a fool. What, what does the king do? Well, whatever the reason, it will become a providential moment that he has left to contemplate all of this. And so while the king is fuming in the garden, Haman immediately takes up his own cause. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. There seems to be a theme of drinking wine here. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. While the king is fuming in the garden, Haman takes up his own cause. A few moments earlier, and I think, look at the irony of this. A few moments earlier, Esther is begging for her life because she's a Jew. Now it's Haman begging for her life, his life from a Jew. This is what we call poetic justice. Haman was so enraged that a Jew would not bow down before him that he wanted to take his life. And now he's reduced to groveling before a Jew begging for his life. Now, in Persian law was very clear and very strict. No one was ever to be alone with the king's harem, Esther, except the king. Haman should have left the room when the king did. But he did not. And his timing could not be worse. As Haman falls on Esther's couch, begging for his life, the king walks into the room. It is, it is a stunning moment. 
And the king returned from the palace to the garden place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence and in my own house? What? cries the king. Now you're assaulting and attempting to rape my wife. That's the accusation. Now these are words of death for Haman. And here's what's interesting. Esther is well aware Haman did not attempt to rape her. Esther's well aware. And she says absolutely nothing. Not, not a word. And again, here is the reversal. Haman falsely accuses the Jews of treason against the king. And now he's a falsely accused of the, of the same thing, of treason against the king. And immediately the, the king's attendants come. Then as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Literally, they put a black hood on Haman's head. A sign, a sign of death. And so they, they put this black hood. Immediately the king's attendants come. They put the black bag over Haman's face. And Harbana, one of the, the king's eunuchs, has a great idea. Then, verse 9, then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, moreover, hey, moreover, the gallows, the stake that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king... So you're getting this idea that, that there were some allies of Mordecai and Esther among the eunuchs. And so he says, listen, this, this stake that Haman prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, 75 feet high. <laughs> and the king in verse 10 simply says, Go for it. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king was abated. Go for it. Go for it. Haman is impaled on a 75-foot-high stake he had prepared for Mordecai, but that stake, of all places, sits in Haman's yard. Where Haman's wife and sons look every day. And then it says... The wrath of the king abated. Peripity, a sudden turn of events. And by Haman's death, the king's wrath is abated and the people of God are saved. The ironies in this story are, are just overwhelming. The disgrace that Haman wanted for Mordecai becomes his. The honor he wanted for Mordecai becomes more, for himself becomes Mordecai's. That's reversal. He desperately wanted to be elevated to prominence. That's what Haman wanted. Being in love with his own image. Well, he is elevated. <laughs> 
75 feet high above. At the beginning of the day, Haman is literally on top of the world, second in command, invited personally to the king and queen's banquet, and he ends the day in the same way, on top of the world. And I can only imagine what's going on in Esther's heart. When I, when I was coaching high school basketball, one of the sweetest moments ever during a basketball game was when one of your players scored and got fouled. And you'd see the referee go, and one. And then he'd get a foul shot, so it'd be a three-point play. Game over. This is what Esther's doing. And one. <laughs> Hang them high. Psalm 74. Wonderfully, chillingly, describes this moment in Haman's life. Psalm 714. I'm sorry. Psalm 714. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. There's a lesson in there. There's a lesson in there big lesson is this. This is the chief end of God's providence in our world, not just in Esther and Mordecai and Haman's world. This is the end, the chief end of God's providence in our world to, to set things right in the end. Do you, do you get that? That, that he, does, he does all things with perfect justice. And that, and that one day, even all the injustice we see in our lives or in this world, one day the, the providence of God, the chief end of God's providence will set all things right. And we, we see that now. Now, we don't see much of God's hidden providence in this chapter, but what we do see is God's saving providence in this chapter. This chapter so visibly tells the story of the gospel. At first, we see it in, in Esther's identification. This, this is where the sweet gospel is displayed as Esther identifies with her people who were under a death sentence. Oh, where does that sound familiar? She identifies with them and her willingness to offer up her life to try and save them. Her willing sacrifice to try and save them. The law of the king has proclaimed the Jews' destruction, but Esther chooses to stand with them. She places herself under their death sentence, and she, and she does so, she secures their redemption. Do you remember in, in earlier in, in the chapter 5, she goes and she stands outside the king, not called by the king, and... In that, in that realm, in, in the Persian realm, if, if you go and show up at the king's palace without being invited, if the king doesn't acknowledge you and offer to let you come in, you are put to death immediately. Standing beside the king at all times was an executioner, a man with a sword who would put to death any who came who were uncalled. 
And Esther puts herself in that position. She is willing to sacrifice her life. She identifies with her people and she's willing to sacrifice her life so that she can save her people. But she's not aware whether or not the king will accept her. And he does. Oh, there is, there is an echo, more than an echo of the gospel here. One that speaks of Jesus Christ who identifies with his creation by becoming one of them. Esther secures only temporary deliverance from an unjust sentence by an earthly king. Jesus, on the other hand, secures eternal salvation from a just and holy God whose judgment is right. Esther stands with her people and intercedes on their behalf. Jesus stands with his people and dies on their behalf in their place. Esther must persuade the king to spare the Jews, but Jesus secures our pardon by shedding his blood, which cleanses us from sin, clothes us in righteousness, makes us holy, and allows us to stand before the Father because Christ is interceding on our behalf. All because he identifies with us. He became one of us. Do you not see that in Esther? Esther's commitment, though though noble, pales in comparison. It pales to the wonderful gospel of grace in Christ who identifies of all things with sinners, with those who have rebelled and rejected God. He, He did not distance himself. God did not do that, nor did he stand at arm's length from us, from his creation, but he came to earth. He came to earth, born as a baby, living under the law, remaining perfect, and then by his death and resurrection, reconciling the world to himself. This, this, is, this is what Christ has done for us. And it's what we see, this shadow of Christ's gospel in Esther. This is, this is a chapter of celebration. This is a chapter of rejoicing. This is a chapter that, you sh- that as you read it, you should be saying, oh, thank God for the gospel. We also see the gospel in this most unusual place, Haman's propitiation. Haman is led away, and the king's wrath in verse 10, it says, is abated. His death satisfies the king and appeases the king's wrath. And by Haman's death, literally, the people of God are now saved. Well, the gospel is anchored in the principle of this one word, propitiation. Abating the king's wrath. Now, let me... Propitiation simply means the satisfaction of wrath by means of sacrifice. The death of Haman propitiated the wrath of the king. The wrath of the king abated. That is propitiation. It's the principle that stands at the very heart of the gospel. God's wrath rightly must be appeased for the sins that have been committed against him. In Esther 7, it is the enemy of God's people that dies to satisfy the wrath of the king. But in the gospel, it's not the enemy that dies. Because we're the enemy. We're all Hamans. By nature, we are enemies of God, all deserving of God's wrath. And yet with amazement, we read in the gospels that it isn't God's enemy who dies, but his son who spares God's enemy by dying in their place. 
He dies to satisfy the Father's wrath, the wrath that has been kindled against us because of our sin. John writes this in his epistle. He says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That's the love of God, brothers and sisters. That is what you live under at this very moment. That is what God is communicating to you in the book of Esther. You are loved by God. You are loved by God so much that he sent his son to die for the enemies of God, to bear the wrath that the king's wrath would be abated. This is the love of God in its fullest demonstration. And unlike Esther's story where Haman is made the propitiatory scapegoat, the wonder of the gospel, the thing that makes the apostle John sing in wonder is is God's love. The God of love that propitiates himself in Christ. Do you you see that? This is is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. This is the the glory of God's providence over evil. Haman's downfall literally is, is God's providence manifested in overturning evil. And the gospel is also, it's all about reversal. All about reversal. The, the religious self-righteous, it turns out, are not accepted by God, but rather it's sinners who are humble in spirit and, and desperate in their need to be saved by God. Jesus blesses the poor and he blesses the outcasts and he blesses the infirm and he blesses the weak and he blesses the hungry and he blesses the despised, but he brings down the haughty as we see here in chapter 7. The gospel, it hangs on this amazing reversal where it seems at at, at the time of the cross that the devil is all-powerful and all is lost. And as Christ hangs on that stake, it looks like evil is one. Peripety. (laughs) Peripety. Oh, it is turned in a moment. Sin was defeated on the cross, death was defeated at the resurrection, and life is given to all who look to Christ. Like Haman, who thought the stake was his victory, the devil thought the cross was his, but in reality, it was his defeat. Esther 7 is a stunning lesson for us that God is all-powerful and always always prevails. And he, he will prevail even in the worst moments of your life right now, whatever it is you are struggling with, whether whatever fears you have, whatever ailments you suffer with, whatever relationally dif- difficulties you have, whether your marriage is, is troubled, your children are astray, God is prevailing. God is bigger Providence is at work. And as we, as we learned earlier, to, to understand providence rightly, you have, to, you have to read providence like you would the Hebrew language. You read it backwards. You look back and you see the glorious, kind hand of God at work. Esther's plan was a necessary part of the process of of bringing Haman to to justice. It was a plan that required her cunning. It required her subtlety, her boldness to carry it out. But listen to this. Listen, Esther's plan by itself was not what turned around the future of God's people. 
The author of this story has shown us this by making the king's sleepless night the hinge of all that the whole story turns on. Prior, prior to that point, Esther and the future of the Jewish people were headed towards destruction, annihilation, and death. And this most important event of all in the book of Esther, the king could not sleep, had nothing to do with Esther or Mordecai, but peripety. God's hidden providence in keeping the king awake. God works very much in the same way in our lives as well. Seemingly insignificant events controlled by his sovereign wisdom to do us good, even when it seems the worst is happening. There are more times of peripety in your life than you are aware of. So learn to spell the word. <laughs> now, it's in these times, though, our, our responsibility is not just to sit back and wait passively to do what Scripture commands us to do. We, we, we're to work. Chapter 5 shows us that Esther is, is working to save her people by approaching the king. Chapter 7 shows us Esther is working to save her people by, by talking to the king. But chapter 6, Esther's nowhere to be found. God is the one totally at work. Peripety, God is doing it all. So the same holds true for us. As we close, we, we look to the Lord's sovereignty in our life. We trust his goodness. We trust his providence in our trials. But we also work. We work to share the gospel. Believing that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. How can they hear unless someone tells them? We, we work and we believe that God must change our hearts to change our lives. And we obey and respond in obedience to his word. Whether we're seeking change in our lives personally, in our marriages, in our relationships, our parenting, our jobs, whatever. We obey. And we pray. We pray. We pray believing that God providentially answers prayer. Chapter 7. Chapter 7 isn't about Esther's sudden revelation of Haman's wickedness. Chapter 7 is about the love of God revealed in his justice, ultimately in the cross of Christ. That's what chapter 7 is about. Oh, Father, thank you for, thank you for this stunning story of gospel love in an Old Testament historical narrative. Lord, what, what a revelation that we can see Christ by looking back so many thousands of years and see that, that our future has been held secure by your sovereign plan. Oh Lord, help us to, to celebrate what we know to be true. That God, you so love the world that you gave your only son. And so Lord, we, we just declare we believe in Christ today. For your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.